Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com doctor rating website. On today's program, we take a global view of the U.S. healthcare system. We're going to take a, a, an overall picture of that system and its problems and its successes. We'll compare our system to the healthcare system in other countries. And we're going to examine the central problems that we have in our healthcare system and the political issues that are involved in changing our system. My guest today is David Coates. He's the World Chair in Anglo-American Studies at Wake Forest University. He's written extensively on political economy and U.S. public policy. He's written the book, Answering Back, Liberal Responses to a Conservative Argument. David, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's good to be with you. Thank you for asking me. So you're a professor of political science. How did you come to be interested in the health care issue? Well, I'm by background a political economist. And I've long been interested in the budgetary consequences of different kinds of public policy. And then see it coming to the United States in 1999 and watching the debate here unfold with my own background, of course, in Western Europe, particularly in the United Kingdom. I became particularly intrigued by the way in which the American healthcare system turns out to be so much more expensive and its impact on, on the public finances so heavy, given that in many ways its coverage uh, of, it, of American citizens is, of course, so limited, at least it was until the new piece of legislation came in. Uh, and it, it's in that general, uh, from that general background that my interest grew. So you, you say it was, the, the U.S. healthcare system was limited in how well it covered people? Yes, it's unusual. I mean, we are, after all, the, one of the richest countries on the globe. And we were a great pace setter in welfare reform, particularly in the 1930s. It's one of the great contrasts, really, that when the rest of the world was going out of fascist or communist in the 1930s in response to the Depression, we were going through the New Deal, and it included fairly innovative welfare reform. The one bit that didn't complete, really, was um, the provision of universal health care. And, th- and then, by contrast, as the countries came out of the Second World War, universal, universal health care systems tended to emerge generally, but not here. And that's a kind of paradox, I think, that we started so well, and then we, but we still have unfinished business, really, from seven decades ago. And we've had periodic attempts to complete that, uh, that agenda, of course, but until recently, we've not been very successful. How would you compare our system uh, to the systems you've experienced in the past? Well, I, I would say to you that, and, and to anybody listening, that 
What's striking about our system is its complexity. It's very hard to say what the American system is. Yeah, well, I love that point. <laughs> it's <laughs> so have, true. We have three or four. Um, and in fact, we have bits of everybody else's, in truth. Um, whereas these Western European countries all have their own, and they're different. I mean, the United Kingdom has a National Health Service, which is a single-payer system run by the government. Um, Germany has something much closer to the bulk of what we have. That's a social insurance program. People actually pay insurance companies and get coverage. The French do that too, but being France and with a strong state, the state kind of runs it from behind, more like Canada, I think. And what's noticeable in those three cases is that the, the health care outcomes are not significantly uh, worse than the United States, those in the United States. In fact, in Germany, in the French case, in fact, on all the international indicators, they score better. Um, and yet they spend a significantly smaller percentage of their gross domestic product on health care than we do. I mean, the United Kingdom, which is not, I think, the model for us, but the United Kingdom actually spends on its entire population the same proportion of its gross domestic product that we spend on Medicare alone. So there is a kind of, you know, what do we do in the United States that makes uh, healthcare here is so expensive, and the first response you normally get is, "Well, we've got better healthcare," and to some degree, I think that's true. But every country tends to claim its healthcare system is the best in the world, and uh, when you start to compare them, I'm not sure we are as far ahead as we could ideally be. I have the sense you, you said that the outcomes are not significantly different, and then you said. Well, what are we getting for our dollar? Maybe we're getting better health care, but now we're not. I'm not so sure. Uh, I have the sense that if you are a patient in our health care system, that you're going to get fabulous care, the best that medical science has to offer. Um, but that when you look at national statistics, you're including all those people who aren't patients. You're including all those people who are addicted to drugs, who are smoking during their pregnancy, who, who don't have access to care. And so national statistics on health care may make us look bad, but the actual care an individual patient gets may be better than care anywhere else. Well, I think that's entirely the right way to go. I think those figures do need seriously breaking down. And it's quite clear that we have very high-quality medicine in the United States. Um, whether it's any higher in quality at the best end than the best of the rest, I rather doubt, simply because of the quality of German and Japanese uh, medical provision. But And certainly when the World Health Organization looks at these things, I think they do disaggregate. And But nonetheless, there's no doubt at all. I think that the, 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 the best of what we have is very fine. We have an access issue, of course, and we have a very, very long tail. People who can't get in or come in late or um, don't get the best care because they don't actually come. And I think that's been one of the major reasons why we've slipped down the international league table, that our, our one American in seven is not in the system. Um, and that's obviously what partly what this legislation is attempting to address. But the other, the other thing you mentioned, which I think is huge, is lifestyle. Um, I mean, the French always come out best on these healthcare statistics. Now, why? You know, is it something special about the French healthcare system? Is it the fact that the French drink a lot of red wine, you know, and that they don't work more than 35 hours a week, and they all live in these lovely little villages and so on? And I think our lifestyle issue is a, is a very large part of our cost problem, and about 10%, possibly even 20% of our healthcare costs 
are linked to issues of food and obesity um, and lack of exercise. And that tells you about what's happened to the United States as a society in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, we put on weight. Um, and, that's not, and the healthcare system has to pick that up as a problem, but it's not the healthcare system's fault. So I think that separation out of those issues is absolutely critical. Uh, certainly the, the biggest impact on health outcomes, uh, I think, rarely has to do with medical care. Uh, you look at the big changes in life expectancy over the last you know, 100, 150 years, and I think indoor plumbing was by far the... Yes. You know. yeah. Well, one of the reasons that I find this issue of, of um, where our health care system is broken um, so interesting, it, it's, it's broken for the small group... It, it's, well, it's a very large group, but it's a relatively small percentage of the population... Um, the system is broken, they don't have access. The, the large majority, um, they do have access. And I think that um, raises issues for how you achieve change in a system. Uh, when, how do you make that change politically? When most people love the doctor they're seeing, uh, think they're getting great care, uh, and don't personally see the, the the problems with the system? Yes. I think this is going to be a conversation of agreements, I think, isn't it? I think that's true also. My only qualification to the, your particular formulation would be this, that though the majority of us have a solid health care provision, its security is very fragile. Um, and most of us seem to spend a lot of our time worrying about whether we'll lose our health care or whether the quality of the package that we, is negotiated next year will go down or the costs which have been rising at twice the rate of inflation will continue to escalate. So one of the things that's very striking, I think, about our conversation in the United States compared to the ones I hear when I go back to the United Kingdom, for example, is that we talk about healthcare all the time because we're concerned about it all the time. And back in those other systems, I don't think we can get to them, but, uh, but back in those other systems, people just, when they're sick, they go to the doctor, and if they're not sick, they don't even think about it. Because in the end, a healthcare system or the financing of a healthcare system is invariably a social contract between the sick and the healthy. But basically, no matter how you finance the thing, what you're saying is that when you're healthy, you'll pay for the coverage of the people who are sick so that when you're sick the healthy will pay for the coverage that you'll require because health care costs are so large and so unpredictable and so on and then the only fight which is a huge fight is about how much of that cost should be anchored on the on the user at the point of consumption um but i think you know politically people think of oh they're just giving money to the poor i mean we're so oppressed ourselves that we haven't got that money to give but in reality, there's always been a social contract between the healthy and the, and the sick in this country, as in every other country. And it's now just being tweaked a bit by this new piece of legislation. And it's at those moments of change that people's political conservatism in the sort of small sea normally does come out because people are frightened that any change will make their situation worse. So we have a number of elements pushing for change. We have the people who, are, who have poor access. And I presume that if they have poor medical access, they probably have poor political access, too. 
Yes, it's remarkable, actually, that this has become a big issue. And I think that given that normally what happens with people who are poor and don't have resources, they don't have resources, period. And so they just, you know, the electoral system doesn't pick them up and they don't vote and the whole thing. Why I think this has become a big issue, as I'm sure you know, everybody listening is aware, is that the cost of health care so rapidly escalated in the, dec- in the in, since the 2000s and the degree of coverage has gone down. But it, it starts to be a general middle-class problem, not just a problem of the poor. Um, and then when you have a major recession like we've been into since September 2008, with all the data shows, you know, that the, the people's health care coverage, of course, has completely collapsed. If you lose your job, you lose your benefits. Even if you don't lose your job, you're under such financial pressure, you tend to hang back from the doctor because you have other, other calls on your budget. So I think... Yes, normally you would leave the poor, unfortunately. You know, the poor would simply not get a look in. But I think we've, this is a much more general crisis, if you like, of American health care provision, and therefore it's become politically potent again. So, so there's the, the elements of the poor. There's the, I love your, your way of viewing it, that security is fragile. So people, even if they have health care, they're not sure they're going to have it. And even those who do have health care, they see their own costs going up, and then there's worries about the national finances and whether it can afford what... what this continued spiral of higher and higher prices. And then I just wonder, do you think there's an issue of fairness that is in people's minds regarding health care that, uh, that makes people feel that, that everybody should have decent health care? I think there is a philosophical issue right at the back of this conversation, like there are in most areas of welfare reform. And for some people, I know health care is just a commodity that should be bought and sold like any other. Uh, And you should have markets for it, unregulated or deregulated markets for it, very much like you were buying a car. Uh, And if you can't afford it, well, then you should go and earn some more money. And right at the other end of the spectrum, of course, are people who feel that health care is, is a uniquely humanistic issue and that, in fact, people should have a, a, a right as a member of a modern society to at least a minimum and adequate level, level of health care provision. If you, if you go on the first line of the conversation, then the big problem you have, of course, is access because people don't have the same amount of money to spend because they don't earn the same amount of money. And you have access issues. If you go to the other end and give everybody health care for free at the point of use, which the British do, for example, then you have these issues of overuse and free riding and uh, moral hazard issues, people not taking care of themselves or taking their health care seriously because they know if they get sick, they can have it for free. And I don't think those dilemmas, Stephen, never go away. You've got to find some balance between them, some happy medium. And I think, you know, that we've, what we've done is to shift slightly away from the market-based commodities sort of model uh, more towards the um, free at the point of use model and that will bring um, moral hazard issues into play but it will lessen access issues i'm not so sure it lessens access issues i you know i think that um, even i'm not sure that there's really a dichotomy here it may well be that everybody thinks that having health care is a uniquely humanistic issue, like having food and a roof over your head. And it's just a question of how you, how you obtain that for people. 
and how much you worry about that moral hazard issue that you raise. Uh, you know, I look at the insurance system, and I and, and basic economics tells me, well, if if the third party is paying for eighty percent of the cost of something, well, then the pro- cost will go up fivefold, so that the that the consumer pays the same thing in the end, and uh, and and. That creates the problem for the uninsured, that once you insure people, you create a system where the costs become dramatically too high, and then and then you have uh, poor access for those who are uninsured. Well, yes, yeah. I, can I come in behind you on Please that one? Please do. I mean, you know, my, studying you know, healthcare systems in industrial societies more generally, what becomes very clear is that you do have rationing issues in all of them you know there's never enough health care to go around and health care is progressively more and more expensive so because of technology as much as anything else in fact that health care is so much better than it used to be i mean i mean this is one of the things that the american health care system is in international terms extremely good at relative to the others is cancer care and that's all very expensive so all all health care systems have to ration some ration by time, you know, you have to wait, the waiting time issue. Some ration by class, uh, you know, if you can't afford it, you can't have it. I mean, I think the ideal is to ration by need. And what we need to create is a situation in which skilled professionals are deciding whether you or I as patients do or do not need, you know, um, a, a CAT scan or whatever. And the, the difficulty of having differential insurance programs mediating the relationship between the doctor and the patient is that the consumer can come in either with or without the capacity to get to the the cuts are we there still the yes oh, yeah. but but th- though the insurance packages differ distribution of knowledge between the doctor and the patient remains the same and that we end up in this ridiculous situation where some people can over medicate because their insurance plans are great and some people under medicate because their insurance plans aren't strong enough so insurance plans are a problem uh, that as a way of of uh, financing a healthcare system ideally we wouldn't use them if we have, but we're stuck with them and the private insurance companies are not going to go away and that's why i think the german model is so useful to us because germany's had insurance um insurance mediating this relationship between patient and doctor from the very beginning. When Bismarck started to put the thing together in the 1880s, insurance companies were there in the mix from the beginning. And how the Germans handle their insurance companies is, I think, an interesting source of guidance for us. They're much tougher on their insurance companies than we are. I think that's what we've got now progressively to become. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Professor David Coates. He holds the World Chair in Anglo-American Studies at Wake Forest University. David, do you have a sense that there's a difference in how these different countries um, view fairness in their medical system? Yes, I do. I think I think that's a big difference, actually. I think in the, the continental ones, the continental European ones, I don't, know, I don't know the Japanese one very well, so forgive me, I'm really talking as a Western European. The basic premise is that healthcare is something everybody has a right to enjoy, and that you should, in principle, you should have healthcare regard, uh, of a certain quality regardless of your capacity to pay for it, so that there's a, quite a redistributive dimension to all those healthcare systems. We, we've never done it that way. We tried twice, of course, with Harry Truman and 
and then with the Clintons in the 90s. But what we've done instead is to go on, a, on the notion that there are certain categories of people who have a right to good health care, even if they can't afford it. And we started with the veterans, of course, with the VA. After the Second World War, because you could hardly ask people who just put life and limb on the line for us then to come back and be treated as though they'd done nothing special. Their Medicare and Medicaid for the old and for the really, really poor came in the 60s. And when the Clintons couldn't make, make progress on universal health care in the 90s, of course, the compromise was S-CHIP, was the state ch child's health insurance program. So we do it by category. And what, in fact, this latest piece of legislation has done, of course, is to extend the category of the poor much wider. Um, but we've never got ourselves into a frame of mind, not since the 30s, I think, where the feeling was that everybody had a right to health care and we just got to get on and organize it so that everybody could get it. We don't do that. And I have the sense that we did not do this on the basis of a national consensus on who the highest priority people for health care are, but rather uh, on the political economy of um, political power in the United States. Well, partly that, I think. I mean, we talked about that before the break. I think that's right. But I think also we did it on the basis of the morality of groups, really. I mean, it's very hard to say to a soldier who's, if he or she's been damaged that he, he, she should stop paying for her own rehabilitation. So the, the, that was a kind of slum dunk. And I think it, it became progressively obvious in the 50s that it was the old who were suffering most from the absence of affordable health care. Very hard to stand up in Congress and say, well, I don't care. Let them die. You know, so I mean, I think, you know, there are definite groups that are very hard to deny to children, isn't it? I mean, I think very powerful arguments for all sorts of reasons why the children should have good health care. It comes through with a long-term saving if they're healthy and so on. So we did it that way, but we never, for all our passion about being Americans and all citizens, we never extended citizenship to health care, you know, as a linked dimension. You mentioned rationing takes place in all the systems, and it takes place in the U.S. as well. That seems to be the crux to, of the issue. It's not whether we should have rationing or not, because we're, we ration now, we're going to ration in the future. There's limited resources, and the real question is, who is going to do that rationing? So... It sounds like in the U.K., they have a national system. They decide how much they're going to spend. There's going to be equality, but there's only so much money in the system. That system is going to ration. In the United States, well, there's no one system, so there's no one form of rationing. But there's more of the decision is put in the hands of individuals. Well, can I just come in behind you to say that I was with you entirely to the last, <laughs> the last phrase. Um, no, I don't think that we are very powerful. What's, what's happened under managed care is it, most of the responsibility is put in the hands of insurance companies uh, who d have to decide wh which medical procedures they will sustain and which drugs they will or will not finance. That seems to me to have moved us away from what I still take to be the ideal model that the doctor decides what medicines we need and so on to one in which we're, the, the people are actually uh, handling the paper do. Um, now, that it therefore becomes a hidden system of rationing, uh, one that's not publicly accountable in any obvious way. I, I take it that you know, in a way, the, an ideal package would be to have a national de debate about the size of healthcare spending relative to other things, which I, I take it politicians in the end have to settle. 
and then the allocation of those funds between need to be handed over to skilled professionals. And I think this um, new Medicare uh, supervisory committee that's been put in in this new legislation to look at the way Medicare expenditures can be more focused is a, it is a tiny step in that direction. It's one I think we should, all of us, be pushing for. An itsy-bitsy baby step. Yes. Towards tiny, having the... So, so what you're suggesting is, okay, we make a rational decision about how much we want to spend total, and then we let doctors decide uh, who gets what. We put them in charge of... Well, I would. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know what? As a physician, I, I just don't want to be in charge of telling patient A... Yeah, you can have the care and telling patient B, no, you can't. Well, somebody's got to do it, of course. And if it is that it would put too much pressure on the professional relationship of doctor to patient, then I think it has to go back into the public domain. I mean, the one, last summer, of course, there was all this craziness about death panels and bureaucrats deciding who will live and who will die. It's quite clear that a very large part of the medical uh, bill is directed to people actually in a lot of parts of their lives. And some decisions have unfortunately to be made by somebody about what those priorities ought to be the, the, the more it compromises the professional relationship the more then it, that's what politicians do for a living but I don't well, I, I worry about and perhaps this is just my take on it is that insurance companies are under particularly for profit insurance companies are under very different imperatives and I mean, if I can just take you back into the German model for a minute. I mean, they have insurance companies, but they're, but they're for not-for-profit, and they they can take an administrative charge, and their their senior executives are well paid, but they're not-for-profit, and and more importantly, they're not allowed to engage in what I'm sure you know very well, adverse selection. In other words, an insurance company really has a strong interest in taking your money, but doesn't like spending it, so they tend to have a strong preference for insuring the young and the healthy, and not the old and the sick. Well, in the German situation, the, the government actually looks at the portfolio of people in each insurance uh, company, and if it finds that it, one particular insurance company has kind of got a disproportionate number of young and healthy people, it levies a fee on that insurance company and transfers that money to others who have got older and sicker people, and in that way levels the playing field in the insurance world. Now, that you know, that's the kind of clever compromise between public uh, supervision and private financing which is very difficult for us to introduce given our political climate and the rather dysfunctional politics going on in Washington. But in an ideal world, I think it would be a way forward for us. It would take the pressure off insurance companies to just pick the healthy and to cherry-pick. And indeed, this requirement in the legislation that they must not allow pre-existing conditions to get in the way or they, and they are not allowed to withdraw their cover just because you get sick. These are also steps in that direction. And actually, I think they're quite substantial steps in that direction and long overdue. I think um, not only is that a substantial step, but I, that may be one of the reasons there was enough um, political will in the country to pass that legislation. Yes. Because, as you pointed out, that large group of people who have access to great medical care today, they don't want to lose it, and their health care security is fragile. And legislation that reduces that insecurity um, may be why, why we were able to pass a bill. I think that's right. I mean, I've got a document in front of me. I know the figures fly in all directions, but... According to the document I have in front of me, 
one American in three would turn down or charge higher premiums because of pre-existing conditions in 2007. That's one in three within the system. So I think that's one of the great worries people have, and I think you're right. I think it just was enough of an issue to make reform matter to people. Well, I want to get down what I what seems to be the heart of, of the real central aspect of, of health care reform, and that is this issue of rationing. And you raised, I think, an issue we can explore, and that is um, care in the latter part of life. People see a huge percentage of our health care dollars being devoted to people in the last few months of life, and it, it just doesn't seem rational. And so who, how can we ration that care more effectively? It seems that we have a number of choices. Choice number one is the government. And the government can just say, no, we aren't going to do it. We're going to have a death panel. All right. Um, number two, um, not, not that such a death panel has ever been proposed, but, I mean, in theory, you could do that. Number two, you could have the managed care company that, I guess, your view would be is a for-profit managed care company is not going to want to spend money because they want the money. In my view, they're going to want to give people great care, but they might decide to ration it so that those health care dollars that flow into the company get used more productively. I guess a third possibility is letting the doctors decide. And to tell you the truth, I really don't want to decide if grandma dies or not. And then four, and this is something you mentioned at the very uh, much earlier, how much of the decision-making should be on the individual. We could put that decision on the individual and their family. If, some of, if, if, they are, if, if they have to face some of the cost of care, then the families themselves can decide, you know, is it really worth throwing money at this problem, massive amounts of money? Um, in, in some ways, in, 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 in my American sensibilities tell me that maybe we should leave it to the individual rather than society to make those decisions. My response to that thing would be this. I mean, the problem will never go away, right? And in many ways, it's a problem caused by the success of modern medicine. People used to die a lot younger, very automatically, with diseases and, and wear and tear that modern medicine could not manage. So this is a real issue, but it's a, it's a good issue, I think, not a bad issue. And it speaks to the success of modern medicine. That's number one. Number two, I think the big problem about handing it back to families, because after all, they are likely to have exactly the same dilemma that you do. I'm sure there are odd families who would just love grandma to die, but I don't think it's a normal relationship with one's parents and grandparents. We tend to be full of love and care. The great problem of handing them back to families is families have different amounts of money. I mean, income inequality in the United States, as in the United Kingdom now, is at an all-time high. So we're back to 1920s levels of income inequality. So the pressure on a rich family relative, relative to a poor family is just very, very different. And I think that's, not a, that's just not a solution. Um, I think the fifth thing, the fifth route you might turn to is to put an awful lot more emphasis on preventive medicine and on wellness rather than illness and to do so from the very beginning of the life cycle. And there are issues, there are uh, you know, lots of details, aren't there, in this piece of legislation is like what, 2,400 pages, it's huge, um, and that includes kind of free checkups for, on, on Medicare, doesn't it, for people over 65 who qualify for Medicare, of course, 
And I think it, keeping the, the old healthy rather than keeping them alive if they're sick is another way forward. It won't get us out of this dilemma at the end that somebody has to decide. But I think actually it would reduce the volume of those decisions significantly. I think we've been pretty bad, actually, at focusing on preventive medicine and, and wellness in the past. And I think that's, and, and we don't talk to each other enough about our dreadful lifestyle and why we have it. Uh, and doing something about it. And I think I would I would put the weight of future uh, work on both those fronts, I think, while recognizing that I, too, see the dilemma of somebody having to decide at the end. Uh, and it, probably a, a partnership of some kind between families and doctors makes more sense to me. I think that's what I would like to be when I get to that point in the hands of my doctor and my family, not in the hands of my insurance company. Yes. You know, uh, when a patient asks me a question that I don't want to answer, I, I do it. The, what I've learned to do from watching American presidential debates, I, I answer a different question. <laughs> and, uh, you know, while I agree with you, you know, an emphasis on prevention and, and, and that in the new bill, that's wonderful. But it really doesn't answer the question of who is going no, to decide whether, when, whether we spend, you know, another half a million dollars on grandma in the hospital in her last month of life. Um, it sounded well, like you were getting there. somewhere that at the end there where you were saying that you would rather you and your doctor make that decision rather than the managed care organization or the government. Yeah, well, I think, sorry, yeah, I, <laughs> it's early in the morning and I'm ducking difficult questions. I mean, I think I was trying to reframe the question, actually, as well as duck it. But I think in the end, of course, there is that decision to be made. And, and, and I think that's a publicly legitimate public conversation. And, and politicians should be making um pronouncements on that in the light of a conversation with their constituents. Uh, it's just not a, I mean, it, it should come at the end of a very informed conversation about healthcare costs, and, I, and I'm sure, apart from people who do this for a living, very few people understand the full dynamics of healthcare costs. And I think, therefore, if we're going to have a public conversation about this, with this bill out of the way, if we can get it through the courts and so on, we should start to talk seriously about the source of healthcare costs and their escalation in the United States because partly it's what's happening generally, partly it's what's happening here specifically, and we need to address that. Dave, at the end of our show, we, we, um, we like to ask our guests about the things that, that, that the listeners can do to improve their health or health care. My takeaway from this is the idea of an open public conversation about where we want our health care system to go. Would you have any other thoughts? Yes, no, I think that's right. I think we've got to take ownership of our healthcare system again. I would just love it to be slightly less partisan. I don't know how you manage that. And I think privately, of course, as I'm sure everybody realizes, our own health is very much our personal responsibility. So I, and I, when uh, this conversation is over, uh, the, I and I are you know, off to the gym. And I think actually exercise and good food and, and uh, good living is a, the, one of the best ways of bringing healthcare costs down in the United States. Right. right now, our way of living is running counter to our desire to keep healthcare costs under control, and we have to address that, in, that, that, that contradiction at some point. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been nice to talk to you. Our patchwork healthcare system doesn't lend itself to efficiency or to easy change. In addition to that, we're faced with competing philosophies of how much government versus personal control we want over our healthcare system. It's kind of scary thinking that we should all individually take control of our healthcare. I think there's a certain um, sense of 
of confidence and, and security in there being a healthcare system out there that will take care of us. Other countries have gone that route. I'm not sure that we want to do that ourselves um, because it comes with inherent limits on the care that we will get. Um, but it may be reasonable, at least in some people's minds, to accept those trade-offs. Uh, one thing we should recognize as we um, debate with other people about the changes in, in, in our healthcare system is that I think everybody comes to this with the same desires, ultimately, for there to be good health care for all Americans. I think they just question uh, what's the best way to get there. Demonizing our opponents is certainly not going to help. Well, if we can't personally change the system right away, uh, we can take personal responsibility for improving our own health. As guest after guest points out, we can... Uh, stop smoking if we're smoking, get regular exercise, and eat a healthy diet. There are also things we can do to reduce the cost of care. And we're going to have Dr. Cynthia Kelker on the show again next week to speak to us about that. She's the author of the book, 101 Ways to Save Money on Healthcare. She'll be speaking with us about things we can do with regard to prevention to save money. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you'll join us next time. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until we speak again, have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com. DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.